If you think dog fights can generate loud barking, beard fangs, and snarling, church fights can get even worse. Turn to Acts chapter 15 with our study leader, Dave Wordson, where God's Word takes us to the heart of a church fight that got really nasty. How many of you have ever been involved in a church fight or experienced a church fight? How many of you have ever had an unbeliever tell you, man, I used to go to church and I used to be involved when I was a kid, but man, I just couldn't stand all the fighting. Those Christians, all they do is fight. You talk about dog fights, like snarling and bearing those fangs and stuff. When God people start to get fighting, it can be a mess. But do you realize that sometimes it's a time for debate? Sometimes there's things that are worth fighting for. In Acts chapter 6, the distribution of the food to the widows was a logistical, practical problem. How do we work this out? How do we make sure that the Greek-speaking widows are not left out? And in Acts chapter 6, we got to see how the early church chose out seven key administrators, people that knew how to get the job done. They knew how to get the food distributed, and the Lord took care of the problems. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, we have a far more serious problem. In Acts chapter 15, the whole early church movement was at stake. And the issue is really, really important. In fact, if the early church in Jerusalem didn't resolve this issue right, it would not just be that a few widows, as important as that was, in the early church of Jerusalem, didn't have enough food. If this problem hadn't been worked out, there would be the eternal death of millions upon millions of people. In fact, you wouldn't be here this morning as part of the body of Christ if the early church didn't work it out. Now, I don't believe that the sovereign plan of God was going to come crashing down. But I also want you to know that the Bible describes that there's real tension in this and people need to take responsibility and people need to work through things. So in Acts chapter 15, we get to watch the early church starting in Antioch and then moving down to Jerusalem to get in a very heated disagreement. Anybody had disagreements this week and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter and you don't know how you're going to deal with it? Well, this chapter not only shows us how we can learn how to do that in church, but maybe you'll get some insights in how you can do that in your own relationship. So turn to Acts chapter 15, and the problem is introduced to us in verses 1 through 4. It's the pointed issue. What in the world were they fighting about? The issue was very important. The issue was, is it faith in Jesus alone? Now listen to me. Do you stand right before God? Are you sure That one day you'll stand right before God. You sure of that? Okay, what's your basis for saying that? And the point of issue is this. Is it faith in Jesus alone? Or is it faith in Jesus plus the law of Moses and all the traditions of Judaism? You say, Dave, what are you talking about? Look at verses 1 through 4 in Acts 15. It says, now some men came down from Judea to Antioch. So our text starts out, you've got some Jews. I know they were Jews because of what they're teaching. And they're from Judea, which is the center of first century Judaism. Judea is the province where Jerusalem was located. It is the home turf of the ancient King David. It's what had the temple at the center of the major Judean city, which is the city of Jerusalem. It is the center at this time just a few years after Jesus was crucified, you've got the Jerusalem temple still standing there. 
You've got millions of Jews that come from all over the ancient world and they come to festivals there. You have Jews dispersed throughout the ancient world. Judaism in the first century was gaining even Gentiles, people that wanted to know God. They were coming to the synagogue. We've been introduced to them like Cornelius was a centurion. So the issue that was at stake, some men came from Judea. They went up to the north. And the reason they went down is you always talk about going down from Judea because that's the holy place. It says some men came down from Judea. They came down from the Mount of Judea. They go north into what's now Antioch, which is now in the modern country of Turkey. And that's where the missionary movement started out. That's where all this business of sending believers out and inviting people like us. How many of you are Gentile? People like us could come into the family of faith. They come down and they raise this issue. They started teaching the brothers. They start teaching among the body of believers that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, Dr. Luke is already pushing and making you decide which side are you going to be on? Are these good guys or bad guys? What do you think? Are they good guys or bad guys? Automatically, Luke is cautioning you. These are not good guys. See, one of the areas is that in anything that you're involved in, you got to decide whether you're going to be on the good guy's side or the bad guy's side. And in our culture, we the idea, well, I can just stay on the outside and be objective. Nobody is objective. You're in the middle of things. And one of the things is to be honest about that. From Acts' perspective, these are not good guys. But I want you to know that in the first century perspective, especially in Jerusalem, these would have been good guys. How many of you think it's really a good person that holds to your ancestral traditions, that meeting regularly for high holy days? How many of you think that's a pretty good thing to do? How many of you think it's pretty good to have obedience, that you had a law that was revealed at Mount Sinai, and the law became the foundation of all the morality? In fact, it's still the whole foundation of American jurisprudence, the Ten Commandments. How many think that there's just something too, like all the sacrifices and the beauty of incredibly powerful choirs singing in Jerusalem and people worshiping the Lord? I want you to know that in the first century, Judaism was a powerful religion. And you need to feel the power and the influence that religion has. You see, from the book of Acts perspective, these aren't good guys. But they would be accepted as very good guys. In fact, in our culture religion's really back in. See, when I was in college, religion was going out, they said. But religion has come on like gangbusters around the world. In fact, if you're going to go into diplomacy, you need to learn about religion because almost all the world, 98% of the world, except for a few intellectual elites, run by their religion. They act by their religion. These men go up to the church of Antioch and what they say sounds really good. Don't you think it's a really good idea to believe in Jesus? Okay. But when you believe in Jesus, don't you need to add to that that you need to regularly go and worship together as a law? Don't you need to do that? And don't you think it'd be really good for us to control some of our dietary habits by having some really excellent rules about food? Those are powerful things that we all get involved in. Nothing wrong with that. My daughter has me doing that right now. But the tendency is that we start combining it with our relationship with Jesus. 
I want you to think really hard about this. Because this is an issue that has plagued the body of Christ for 2,000 years. In fact, this is still going on. It's the idea that you need faith in Jesus, plus you need all the rules and regulations of Judaism. What we do is don't add the rules and regulations of Judaism. We add our own rules and regulations. There's something really powerful about that. There's something really powerful about locking people in behavior patterns. And you can really change behavior by doing that. And the early church was wrestling with this. It wasn't debates about whether all the Texas A&M rules and rituals and tradition were really powerful against the Austin free-willing spirit. This was inspired stuff from the Old Testament. This wasn't just human tradition. These traditions were given by God at Mount Sinai. But these men that went up had misunderstood the purpose of those Old Testament laws. And this is the big issue. You see, as you come through to the first century, there's a big divide. As you come to the first century, there's those that hold that the way that you stand right with God, the way that you deal with your sin, the way that you deal with your addictive behaviors, the way that you deal with the problems that you face in your life that cause you to do immoral things, the way that you deal with that is you obey the traditions of Judaism. You get in a group of people that will give you strong family, that will give you strong holy days, that will give you a very strong ethical code, that will give you 613 rules and regulations that will tell you what to eat and what you should do on a Sabbath and what you should do as a people. And if you obey those things, it will help to produce order in life. And for 2,000 years, Orthodox Judaism has maintained a lot of those traditions. And it's powerful. In fact, believers that were raised in churches like ours, and as they get exposed, for example, they take a trip to Jerusalem, and they're exposed to Judaism, they experience the Shabbat, they want to add the Mosaic law, and they want to keep the culture laws, and they want to worship in Sabbath. I have those that are very close to me that follow that. So this is a very real struggle going on. When those teachers came up to Antioch, it got really hot Because there were lots of Jewish influence. All this incredible tradition was present there. The debate intensifies. Who would you think was on the side of grace? Well, it says this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenician Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. So Dr. Luke is setting the stage. This is introduction. Which side of the debate do you think Dr. Luke is on? It's obvious. He's on Paul and Barnabas' side. He was one of Paul's sidekicks. And I want you to see he's already setting the stage. Paul and Barnabas are the ones that went into Asia Minor and they presented the gospel of free grace. It's Jesus plus nothing. And the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Like, what do you think it takes for the Holy Spirit to come into your life? How many of you think that the Holy Spirit's in your life this morning? How did he get there? See, some of you have been raised in traditions. Like, there's some people that really have the Holy Spirit 
And the way that they got the Holy Spirit is they became more pure. They became more devoted to prayer. They became more devoted to fasting. They became more devoted to opening themselves up to the work of the Spirit. Those are all religious traditions. All religions practice those meditative techniques and fasting techniques. That's what's the issue here. I'm trying to help you to feel what this was like in the first century. And in the first century, it wasn't just human tradition. There was, all the way from the time of Moses, 1,400 years before Christ, these traditions were established because in the Old Testament, the Lord had to preserve a people that would produce the Messiah. And ethnicity, maintaining national identity was really, really important because Jesus, the ultimate seed, needed to come into the world. And these powerful men are teaching that we need to add to faith in Jesus, circumcision and all the customs of Moses. What are we at? What are we at? Well, Paul and Barnabas represent the free grace side. And as they travel down, Dr. Luke has them go to Phoenicia, which was an area where there were a lot of Gentiles. And when Paul and Barnabas are in Phoenicia, there are many Gentiles that have now joined the body of Christ and they've been filled with the Holy Spirit just because they believe. And everyone's rejoicing. They come into Samaria. You need to understand that the way Dr. Luke is loading the debate, because Samaritans, if you're a Judean, you don't really like Samaritans. And Phoenicians are worse. So what Dr. Luke, I want you to understand the way that he's putting this picture. He has those that are on the outside, people that Judeans would have a hard time welcoming in. He has them being welcomed because the Holy Spirit is in their life. We need to ask ourselves, do we welcome people just because the Holy Spirit is in their life? Because the Lord is working in their life or because the Lord can potentially work in their life Or do we welcome people that obey our standards, that obey our rules, that obey our regulations? That's what this chapter is about. Will the message of Jesus be locked up in a little ethnic group? That's what's at stake here. In other words, will the fact that Jesus died on the cross for people's sins, the fact that Jesus rose again, will that be locked up in a small ethnic group that controls everyone that gets in by making them conform to getting circumcised and obeying all the rules and regulations. What's your ground of acceptance? What's my ground of acceptance of letting people in? How do you solve those issues? Well, we can debate like crazy. The debate will get hotter and hotter, and Dr. Luke is teaching us under the inspiration of God how you solve problems like that. The key issue in any debate is to find out not what I think, not what you think, but what God thinks. That's the key issue in your marriages, in your church. Like whenever you're in a fight, what you get really hot about is that's what I think. And I know that, right? Anybody ever done that? And and you get, in fact, the more insecure you are, the hotter you get. Like if you really don't know what you're talking about, you get hotter. Even when you really do know what you're talking about, it's not what Dave thinks. In our church family, as we continue to minister together, as we have a great mandate to reach into all the world with this incredible good news, the only thing that's going to hold us together is the Holy Spirit in your life and in my life connecting us with what God thinks. Amen? You say, how do you find out what God thinks? Well, in the early church, the way you found out what God thinks is you get some godly men 
some elders. And they can go down and talk to the original apostles. And that's what's going to happen in Acts 15. You see, there are the 12 apostles. Mattathias was added in Acts chapter 1. And they were the ones that actually lived with Jesus from the time he was baptized by John the Baptist until he was crucified. And then he rose again. And these 12 apostles saw Jesus raise again from the dead. There's also the Lord Jesus' half-brother, James, who in Jesus' earthly life, rejected Jesus, was upset with his brother. You can read about that in John chapter 7. He says, Jesus, why don't you just make yourself public? You know, why do you stay up here in backwoods Galilee? James talks to his brother like that. Another time James tried to go, our brother's crazy. That's what his earthly family thought about Jesus. James held that. But when Jesus rose again from the dead, Jesus appeared to James. And James was never the same again. The man that was his brother in his earthly life became his Lord and Savior. And James is a very Jewish, I want you to understand, he's very much Jewish. In fact, he lived his whole life in Jerusalem until in about 62 AD, they stoned him, they killed him before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he was renowned. Even his Jewish opponents loved James because he was such a godly man. So they bring this issue down to Jerusalem to see what's going to happen. And that's what we have in chapter, in verses 5 through 21. It says, then some of the believers belonging to the party, as they're having this big party, everyone's celebrating. Isn't it awesome what God has done? And the Phoenicians have received Jesus by faith alone. And the, even the Samaritans are in the family. Everybody's rejoicing about the inclusiveness of God's family and how exclusivism has been destroyed. Suddenly, someone says, now, wait a minute. It says the Pharisees raised their hand. Notice what it says. Some of the believers, so they are believers. You need to understand this is not the issue about Jewish unbelievers working with believing Christians. These are all, at least in their party identification, these are all believers. This is a family debate. This isn't a debate with unbelievers like Paul had in the synagogue of Antioch or like he had with the Athenians that we're going to get to in Acts 17. This is a family debate. It says, some of the Pharisees stood up. Now, as soon as you hear the word Pharisee, you go ballistic, and they're the hypocrites. They're the bad guys. In the first century, that would not have been so. When a a Pharisee was a a lay person like you that was Jewish, but they believed that the laws that were applied to the priests for holiness needed to be applied out among the people. They saw Judaism slipping about 200 years before Jesus came. And they grabbed a hold of it and said, we're going to separate ourselves. The word Pharisee sounds like separated ones. And in fact, in Hebrew, the word is the kassid, which are the holy ones, the ones that are really committed, that are devout. And these Pharisees began to practice Judaism out there among the people. How many of you think, you know, they were the ones that taught in the synagogue. They're the ones that made sure that families held together by obeying the law of Moses. They are the ones that produced Orthodox Judaism because after the destruction of Jerusalem, all the other parties in Judaism, the Zealots, the Sadducees, the Essenes, they're all gone. There's only two parties left. There are the Pharisees and there are the followers. They're called in Judaism the Nazarenes. You would be called a Nazarene because you chose to follow Jesus the Nazarene. And so those are the two big parties. And it's this party, the Pharisees, 
only the party that didn't choose Jesus to be the Messiah that become the founders of what's now called rabbinic Judaism. So that's the historical perspective here. When they stood up, they wouldn't be booed down. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a bunch of play actors. I want you to know they would have been respected. They are the holy ones. They are the ones that are very consistent in their religion. They're the ones that keep all the rules and regulations. What do they say? They said they claim that the Gentiles must be circumcised and they must be required to obey the laws of Moses. That's the issue at stake. These Jewish Pharisees stand up and say, Jesus is great. And we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. That's great. But now we're going to invite a bunch of pagans. We're going to invite people that have tattoos all over them, that slept with their girlfriends and boyfriends before they came to know Jesus, that have eaten all kinds of pig constantly. We're going to have people that worshipped Jupiter and Mercury and Isis and Osiris, and we're going to invite them to our gatherings on Sunday night that we've started to have to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And we got to have some rules around here. You've already started doing that. We need to ask ourselves, like, who do we welcome to our youth groups? Who do we welcome to our Sunday school classes? What are the prerequisites that you have to have to really be accepted in our group? Those are really powerful forces. You see, as people that are different than us start coming in, In fact, the Holy Spirit is calling us to go out among people that are different from us. And this is a debate in the first century. In order to believe in Jesus, in order to become holy and mature and to become godly, we need to add all the structures of the moralism of Judaism because the Holy Spirit isn't going to be enough. This is really serious stuff. In fact, all of my life I've wrestled with Is Jesus and his gift and the power of the Spirit sufficient to mature people in Christ? Or do you need to add, and we don't add the traditions of Judaism, we add a bunch of our own traditions. We add a bunch of our own rules and regulations. So that's what's at stake. Now, how do you resolve an issue like that? Like, it doesn't make any difference what I think about it or what you think about it. The issue is, what does God say about it? And so what we have in this next section is incredibly, it says, how do we discover God's will in the midst of this? Look what it says here. It says that the apostles and elders met to consider this question. So when there's big debates in the church, the early church got the apostles. Those would be the ones that were the, that experienced the life of Jesus, saw his resurrection. And where would we have access to the apostolic tradition and witness and revelation today in God's holy word. So in our church family today, you don't have apostles. Just by nature of the case, when John the apostle died in the 90s and he passed off the scene after writing the book of Revelation, we don't have those that were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit didn't leave us without an apostolic witness. And that's one of the big differences in our church. If you're from an Anglican tradition, if you're from a Roman Catholic tradition, they hold that the apostolic witness was passed down orally. 
If you're a Roman Catholic, the reason you need to listen to the Pope is because the Pope has the apostolic witness. It's a big difference between our, our church family and what we call the high church movement. What I believe is that we do not have human beings on the planet right now who have the same authority as God's inspired, revealed word. That's what the issue was at stake in the Reformation. It was a very powerful thing. Will it be God's word plus the tradition of several hundred years, 1,500 years of church history and the church council? Or will it be we can go to the word of God for ourselves? It's a big debate even to this day. What I believe is that the New Testament indicates that we have the apostolic witness through this word, and every one of you can read it. But you also need to realize that there's elders. Dr. Luke shows us that they gathered some mature daddies. They gathered some men that would be able to understand God's word. They had maturity in understanding God's word. They were a wise family. They knew that you didn't ask someone that just came into the faith that doesn't know the, the scripture at all to decide this issue. There's a lot of free discussion, lots of free debate. But when they come to that, we need to find out what God really thinks. They do what is hard for us as Americans to do. They turn to those that have maturity in the faith. And that's something that we need to ask ourselves about as a church family. How are we going to find in the midst of our controversy, in the midst of our arguments, how do we find an answer? How do we find what God's will is? And the early church is a great example. They went back to what would be the word of God, God's Holy Spirit speaking through their apostles, and we're going to have three apostolic witnesses in the next paragraph that really nail down the issue. And you're going to have a mature group of mature godly leaders in the church of Jerusalem and in the church of Antioch that give guidance and hold the church family to believing the revelation that God gave and making sure that we didn't get locked into Judaism. That's what's at stake here. So what happens? First of all, it says the apostles and elders met together to consider this question. So one of the things that needs to happen as Americans, we have the idea, let's just have free-for-alls. And we all have equal say and everything. That's very American. Well, we need to think about it. When it comes to really hard biblical issues, where do we look to for advice? And I want you to see the early church in Jerusalem had lots of free discussion. The discussion got really hot. It could have divided the whole church. The way they resolved it, they went back to those that were inspired to be their foundational leaders. Then they also let the mature, older, mature elders respond to the issue. What happened in the discussion? So after much discussion, Peter got up. So they had a free discussion. Lots of back and forth. The Pharisaic group is standing up saying, we don't think that salvation by faith alone is going to be enough to mature all these crazy Gentiles. They need the law of Moses. They need to be circumcised. We need that discipline of religion. Okay? What happens? It says, Peter got up and addressed. This is very, very important. Peter is the one that started the church by the power of the Spirit at Pentecost. Peter is Jewish. Peter is the one that was ordained to take the gospel throughout the Roman Greek world and reach Jews in the diaspora. So it's very fitting for him to stand up. And what Peter says is, in essence, he says, hey, God's already decided this issue. We're debating it. 
But the issue, upon what basis do you receive the Holy Spirit? That's the focus. What causes the living God of the universe to send his third person to come and live in people's lives? That's the focus. And Peter says, God, our Heavenly Father, has already answered that question. And that's why Dr. Luke told you what happened in Cornelius' household twice already. And now we're going, again, Peter goes through it. Look what Peter says. That after much, he says, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear the message from my lips, the good news, and that they might believe. God, who knows the heart. See, God is the one. That's why we look to him. We don't know people's hearts. Only God knows the heart. He showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us. He made no distinction between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. So what did Peter say? Peter is saying, when I was at Cornelius' house, Cornelius is a Gentile. All of Cornelius' household are Gentiles. I told them the story of Jesus, how Jesus did the miracles, how he was baptized by John the Baptist, how Jesus died on the cross for their sins, how Jesus rose again from the dead. And in the witness of Acts, Peter didn't even get through with his message. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius' household. And Peter is asking a very simple question. Upon what basis did Cornelius receive the Holy Spirit? Did he get circumcised? Answer me. Did he obey the law of Moses? What did Cornelius do to receive the Holy Spirit? Just believe in Jesus. And was Jesus enough to purify him? And in this context, it means like, if you don't feel purified this morning, you ain't going to stand before the Lord because you got to be purified. What I'm saying is the reason that you can feel pure before the Lord is not because of your moral righteousness and your own strength, not because you keep religious tradition, but because you've received the gift of Jesus's purity. When you trusted Jesus, he came to live inside of you and you're going to stand right before God and I'm going to stand right before God, not because of what I've done, but because of the gift of purity that I've received in Jesus. And that becomes the ground of your transformation. That's what causes you to live for the Lord. Not because you've been locked in some rigid traditional religious pattern, but because you've been transformed by having the Holy Spirit come to live right inside of you. And Peter makes a claim the way that Cornelius received that gift was not because he needed to be circumcised, but simply because he believed. Then Peter says something else. He says the, re- the Old Testament law was a burden that none of us could ever, ever keep. Look what he says. As a Jew, he said, Now then, why do you try to test God? By putting on the necks a yoke of the disciples, putting a yoke on them that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. No, we believe that it is through grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we are saved just as they are. How are we going to get deacons around here to serve the family? We need some tradition around here. Nothing ever gets done around here. So the way we're going to do it We're going to come up with some rules and regulations. And that'll make them do it. And we'll whip this place in shape. And what we start to do is you start to feel when when the Holy Spirit isn't given freedom, when the Holy Spirit is being resistant, 
It takes a ton of regulation to replace them. And that's what the early church is wrestling with. And that's not, don't, it's, that's not Dave Wardson's philosophy. That's what Peter is saying. The law of Moses told you what to wear. It told you when to get up. It told you what to eat. You know what Peter just said? None of us were able to obey. And that's what I want all of you to realize. The purpose of the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law was really good. It's a beautiful, holy thing given by God. You know what's wrong with it? Us. None of us can keep it. And that's the point. You say, Dave, why did God give all those rules and regulations so that you would realize you're unclean? So that I would realize I'm unclean. The the problem with the Pharisees is is they thought they were clean. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Because they killed Jesus over. Remember Jesus told them, they said, are we blind too, Jesus? Remember what Jesus said to this group? He said, oh, I wish you realized you were blind. Oh, I wish you were, you'd realize how sick you are. But because you think you have it all under control, because you've got all your religious rules and regulations, because you've got all this tradition, you think you can see. And they ended up crucifying the one that all the Old Testament was pointing to. And now they're in the early church and some of them have believed in Jesus, but they're trying to add to that regulations and rules. There's going to be some guidelines about how we get along together, how we work together, but Peter couldn't be stronger. He's saying, please don't do that. And then Paul and Barnabas throw in their two cents they shared with those who assembled together became silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs, the miraculous wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. So this is the third apostolic witness. Peter spoke first. He won the day. Paul and Barnabas jump in and cheer and says, hey, it's proven. All that God is doing, the incredible miracles that God is doing as people, Gentiles, are being transformed by the power of the Spirit. Then James stood up. He said, brothers, I want you to listen to me. There's always the old godly James. James, this precious leader, the half-brother of Jesus that's now been transformed. He summarizes the case. He said, Simon described to us how God had first showed his concern by taking the Gentiles to be a people for himself. He unites that with the words of the prophets. James roots what Peter said and what Paul and Barnabas said to what Amos said, the Old Testament prophet. And Amos predicted in Amos chapter 9, 11, and 12 that God would rebuild David's fallen tent. That would be the people of Israel. He would rebuild it and restore it. And when he did that, when the Jews returned, there would be a remnant of men that would seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear the name of the Lord. What Amos was saying is when the Jews came back, that there would be a time, in fact, the Hebrew text actually said that the, the hated Edomites would be called into the family of God. The Hebrew text doesn't just mention Gentiles. It mentions the worst Gentile you can imagine from an Israelite perspective. Because the Edomites were those that murdered the people of Israel, especially when the northern kingdom took them captive. When Assyria came down and took the northern kingdom, the Edomites came in and killed the old people and kidnapped the children and sold them for slavery. If I said I was an Edomite, an Israelite spit, they hated Edomites. And the Hebrew text of Amos says, but when the Lord 
brings you back and starts to rebuild, which is getting ready for the Messiah. Amos was predicting there's going to come a time when even the hated Gentiles, even the hated Edomites come in. So James roots what he's saying in that incredible animosity. And now that there's peace. And then he gives some very practical advice. He says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles returning to God. Instead, we should write to them. Tell them that they need to stay away from food polluted by idols. So stay away from idolatry. They need to stay away from sexual immorality, which was very prevalent among the Gentiles. From the meat of strangled animals and from blood. The idea for a Jew, it would just make them sick to their stomach. Gentiles would, instead of cutting the throat and drain the blood, Gentiles would boil an animal with all of its blood inside. And that was abhorrent to a Jew. So in order to have good relationships, don't do that. That way we'll be able to get together. It says, for Moses is preached in every city from the earliest times, and it's read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. The church comes together. And because the church of Jerusalem answered the question right, are you standing right before God? Are you purified by God because you obey the law of Moses plus Jesus, or is it just Jesus? The early church of Jerusalem got it right. Was that the end of the battle? No. This is still going on in the body of Christ. And it will go on until Jesus comes back. You have to decide whether you're resting in the parable of free grace. Tremendous wisdom. Do we need to have guidelines and principles about how we get along and about how we organize things so that we get the church set up right and so we get many hands that make light work and so we handle finances and so we can keep reaching out, whatever the Holy Spirit leads us to do. But we always root it in God's grace and his love working with us in the power of the Spirit. 